There we go. Okay, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, good morning. Good morning Libby. <laughs> good morning to those women across the world. <laughs> Hola. Oh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, today we're just going to get a little overview about our study, what areas of scripture we're going to cover, a little background information, and then some of the things we can expect to find and discover in the study on the Sermon on the Mount. So as we look at the scriptures, uh, we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which is in the book of Matthew, and we're going to see that it is directly quoting Jesus through this entire passage of scripture. So we're going to get to our Bibles. You can look now or we can look in a little bit together. But we're going to see that the portion of, of scripture that we're studying is actually in quotations almost the entire time. So if we're in our Bibles um, and your Bible has Jesus's writings in red, which some Bibles do, some Bibles don't, but this in, pretty much except for like three sentences, this entire portion is going to be in red. So the actual Sermon on the Mount is found in the book of Matthew in chapters 5 through 7. And we can also find these teachings and echoes of these teachings that Jesus says um, in the other Gospels. But this account in Matthew is the longest continuous section of Jesus himself speaking in the New Testament, which I thought was kind of interesting. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. Yes, and we're going to, I thought we'd walk through it together. Five. Thank you, Peggy. That's where we're focused. Well, awesome. So there are a lot of books, well, 66 in there. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So that, though, yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Okay. No, thank you, Peggy. Um, so I, th I thought that was interesting that this is the longest recorded um, continuous section of Jesus's speaking in the, in the New Testament. Um, we can also find an abbreviated account of the Sermon on the Mount in Luke 20 um, through 49, but we're going to focus for our purposes on the Matthew section. So let's look at our author, John Stott. Again, this is just going to be a little bit of an overview just to get us to jump into our study this semester. And John Stott, evidently, we should all know who he is, according to Time Magazine, because in 2005 <laughs> he was uh, ranked among the 100 most influential people in the whole world. So wow. who knew? I don't know. I'm not I familiar with that. I didn't either. What year was that? 2005. Wow. I know. So we're, we're in lofty company here. But he, I'll just give you a little bit of background. He was born in 1921, and he passed away in 2011. He was an English Christian leader and an Anglican cleric. I don't know why I find that such a mouthful, but an English Christian leader and an Anglican cleric who was noted as a leader of the worldwide evangelical movement. And he was one of the principal authors of the, I don't know if I'm saying this right, Lusane Covenant in 1974. So why is that significant? Um, I just wanted to kind of pull that out for all of us. It's interesting because it does relate to our study. The Lusane Covenant is a 1974 Christian religious manifesto promoting active worldwide Christian evangelism. And it's one of the most influential documents ever written in modern evangelical Christianity. So we can kind of know that. I guess it's still in existence today. So the reason um, that I wanted to pull that a little bit is because Stott was so, our author, was so instrumental in writing this Christian manifesto. And I wanted to uh, reiterate how Stott himself describes the Sermon on the Mount. 
And he says, the Sermon on the Mount is the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered, for it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. So obviously it's interesting that this man takes um, such a stand. He wants to proclaim what he believes and what we as Christians believe. And looking at this, um, it translates right into the Sermon on the Mount, um, because often the Sermon on the Mount is called the Great Manifesto. So what is a manifesto? You probably are all much more literate than I am and have like this wonderful idea of what a manifesto is, but all I could remember is that I think of like Russian literature. I have no idea. I think exactly. Stalin or something yeah. wrote mm-hmm. in manifesto. Um, so I looked up just a, a, def- a definition just to give us a little more understanding. And, and the one that spoke to me the most and I thought was seemed the most relevant is it's a mission statement. So maybe instead of mi- manifesto, we can say a mission statement. So it's a little more familiar. So let's look at that quote and um, the handout you have has this quote on there. If you want to look at it, you don't have to. But it says, the Sermon on the Mount is the nearest thing to a mission statement that Jesus ever uttered, for it is his own description of he wanted his what his he wanted his followers to be and to do. So I think it's important to realize that this isn't Jesus's mission statement for himself. His mission statement was obviously to save the whole world. But our author is encouraging us to look at the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus' mission statement to us, to us as his followers. And as we study the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to be called to ask the question, what is Jesus asking of me? And as we read these scriptures, what we're going to be asking, what call is Jesus putting on my life as his follower? So kind of back to that application piece we were talking about with Peggy, it's hopefully that's what we're really going to grab out of here is what does it, how does it apply to our life and how do we put it into motion? Last semester we studied the book of Mark and in the book of Mark we looked carefully at what Jesus did while he was here on earth. The book of Mark focuses much on Jesus's actions and this portion of scripture that we're going to be studying this semester is in the book of Matthew focuses on the teachings of Jesus. So we're going to look more at what Jesus was teaching. So a little bit of background on the Sermon on the Mount. It's probably the best known part of Jesus's teaching. I didn't realize it until now, but you know the song, This Little Light of Mine, mm-hmm. I'm gonna, that's comes right out of Sermon on the Mount. I had never made that connection, but there you go, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. So just, it's, I think it's, it's part of our vocabulary and just kind of our workings that we've um, turned into, uh, that we draw from. The Sermon on the Mount is found towards the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. So what does that what does that look like? Uh, we just celebrated Jesus's birth at Christmas time, um, when Jesus came down to Earth as the promised gift of God for Himself from Himself, and we know a, a good bit, or and a lot of it, some of it has been embellished over the years. But about the Christmas story and about the birth of Jesus, we know a lot of it from the Book of Matthew and the Gospels, but we don't know a whole lot about the childhood and the adolescence and the early life, the adult life of Jesus. We do know that Jesus entered his public ministry at the age of 33, at 30, excuse me, and then was crucified at the age of 33. So we're talking about that three-year span, which is just 
remarkable when you think of how the world was transformed in so many ways um, from that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I thought I gave it to you. Sorry. Maybe she did, but it's... Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is a public proclamation of Jesus' mission statement to all of us. It's a descriptive calling, again, of what Jesus himself asks us as his followers to be and to do. So we're going to be looking at Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And because Bible literacy is something I know we can all work towards, um, it's something we can all strive for, it's a skill that we can develop, I just thought we'd look and take a reminder um, at Bible literacy and how how we look at our Bible. I'll probably skip a little bit of this. Um, but, but because I'm in children's ministry, I have all these ridiculously ginormous Oh, oh my! <laughs> I love it. That's the biggest flannel I've ever seen. I know. Wow. Like, I have access it's a to a big god store. To all, the, oh, to all these great like tools for teaching, yes. and I don't know about you, but honestly, sometimes I find my best teaching is just in children's absolutely like, yep. messages, Me too. Bibles, because just brings it down and boils it down. So I thought today, and we just just briefly, and we. Um, this is probably a lot of review and a lot of familiarity, but I think it's such a, a beautiful um, demonstration of kind of just a look at the Bible as we as we dig in it. So the, um, the Bible can be called the big God story. That's what we call it in children's ministry. That always helps me keep in mind that um, it's the same. It's a story from the beginning in the very first book of the Bible in Genesis, all the way to the end in Revelation. And it's one big story. And so it's the story of God's love. There's only one hero in the whole in the whole book, and that is God himself and his son Jesus. I guess that's two, but together is the Trinity and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> that's a whole other. Yeah, We're not going into that. But God is the hero of the big God story. It's not Daniel or David or Paul. It's, it's God himself. Um, and it's the story from the very beginning to the very end of God's love and his grace and his redemption um, of us. So the Bible is broken up into sections, but those are man-made sections just to help us navigate this huge God story. So it's like, um, you know, sequels or movies that are broken up into pieces so we can better understand them. But we start with creation, which is actually over here. It should be on this timeline. It's a little bit older timeline. I think they updated it. But there's creation, where God created um, the world, and he created Adam and Eve. And then, yeah, this one doesn't have it on here, but right in here, like right here at the beginning, we look at how man fell. And it's the introduction of sin in the world, and how that broke the relationship with God. Can everybody see you? Is it? Okay, okay. And so then the Bible, the great love story, the big God story, goes through. So we have a broken relationship with God. And right here at the very beginning of the Bible, in our books of Genesis, we can see how God says, okay, I love you so much. I'm going to promise you that eventually, at the right time, I'm going to send a redeemer to restore your relationship with me. It's broken. It's messed up, but I love you so much. I'm going to. We're going to work all the, up to the point where I send my redeemer, so you can um, spend forever with me. And the old. So what we look at is that redeemer is Jesus. Oh, Jesus, there's Jesus. So if we look at this as a demonstration of the Bible, we have 
the Old Testament would be here, the time from creation until Jesus. And then the New Testament would be from Jesus, thank you, Sherry, to the end where Jesus has returned. Now, um, that is the demonstration of the Bible. But it's important, and this is something we do a lot with um, children's ministry, and I, I think that in my own life it's been very powerful, is to realize we're part of this big God story, too. We're in here. So, yes, the Bible, um, as, a, as a true piece of literature, goes from the beginning to the very end, um, but we're stuck in here. Our story is in here before Jesus' return. So that's what we're going to learn today is how we can best live um, according to what, what Jesus is teaching in, in the Sermon on the Mount. So we've got that. We've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. Then the Bible is also broken up into books. Um, and so that's, again, just a delineation so that we can kind of navigate ourselves through the, the different books. And then in the books, it's divided up through chapters. And then even further, it's divided up into verses. So that's what we're, we're going to look at today. Any thoughts on this? Or I love that. I have never seen that linear presentation before. Yeah. I love it. Yes. I'm going to take a picture of it. Okay, good. Good. <laughs> Should, should we have that smaller? <laughs> I don't. I, I don't. Know. Know. I think a picture. I, here, I'm thinking. How did you yeah. get that in your car? And I, bring oh, it? oh no, no, it was it downstairs. downstairs. Oh, I was well, and I'm so struck by the 400 years of waiting. Yes, yes. yes. Wow. between wow. Isaiah and Jesus, uh -huh. 400 years. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so hard to waiting, waiting, fathom waiting, that. Waiting, I, I was just teaching on that this year. Yes, absolutely. I'll probably, I'll probably put it back downstairs, right. but then, then let me know when I'll bring up. And if you want, there's even a better timeline that's more detailed and all of that on the wall and children's station downstairs. So if anybody wants to, I can let you in there and, and see it. But it's a really great um, visual. Uh, visual, mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I noticed that Saturday when I was at Buddy Break, I was looking at it. You know, at the other campus, yeah. I'm like, mm -hmm. that is really useful. Yeah. That's really, yeah, it yeah. is. It is. And one thing that's kind of neat, I don't know um, if anybody is doing the small groups of the big no, all-time bestseller the book club. The Bible verses out and, and put them together, but took out all chapter delineation and all um, verse delineation. So as you read the all-time bestseller book club, you're reading Genesis and Exodus from our Bibles, but there's no man-made delineation. So it just reads like a story. And it's mm -hmm. funny. I've never read the Bible like that, but it does read differently. It, it does. feels yeah, it different does. when you read it without mm -hmm. the, the separations. Thank goodness we have the separations because yeah, I, <laughs> I, I need them. We never find anything. But exactly, exactly. But it's also yeah. kind of interesting to do both. So yes, so so that's kind of where we're looking um, for our Bible literacy. And again, I I don't know about you, but I can always use more refreshment on that and remembering where books are and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of a, a skill that just keeps keeps coming. All right, so we did this. 
As a child, I had to memorize all the books of the Bible. Yeah. You know, to get a sticker on a chart. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, stuff you learn as a child. It, you don't sticks. forget. Yeah. Exactly. I, I was not. Yeah. And, you know, that was not either. something that I did. And no, I so I wish. I didn't even know there was a Bible. That I had. Right. Now you're still trying to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There was a song that they would teach. Yeah. Right. Not in our church. But yeah. Um, yeah. My, my niece learned it. Yeah. She yes. could recite it in kindergarten. Right. Well, it's like the name of the disciples. I cannot remember the names of the disciples, but Jan Jeffrey, one of our friends, has a song. <gasps> oh. And he put you know, lyrics and it melody, and you got it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And a children's song. I mean, it is amazing it is. to hear these little yeah. kindergartners yeah. be able to just yes. recite these things so yeah we can always go back to songs I mean that's why I love children's because it's just so easy to like okay exactly that's why they like exactly you're exactly exactly we respond to that too that's right that's right that's what we are that's right I love it so let's go to our Bibles um And so why don't we start by just looking at the table of contents. And here is where we can see all those man-made delineations of the different books and the chapters. Uh, We see the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we're going to be looking at the New Testament for this entire study, most of it. We might introduce a few different things. But uh, we're going to go to the book of Matthew, which is the very first book in the New Testament. So why don't we turn to Matthew now. And we're going to be looking at chapter 5, which is big number 5. And my Bible, I don't know if your Bible looks like yours does, Sue, but my Bible has all writing in red, and I can see like that big portion of red that's going to be Jesus speaking. That's helpful. I like that. Yeah, to know it's him. So if we look at, depending on how big your print is and that kind of thing, but if we look at chapter 5, we're going to go all the way through to chapter 7. And you can see where it ends, right before chapter 8, with a little bit of of black writing, if your Bible does that. So back to the Sermon on the Mount. Why is it called the Sermon on the Mount? And as I looked at this, I thought there must be some hugely spiritual Israeli reason it's called sermon on the mount he was on the mount mount. and he was giving a sermon so (laughs) it really wasn't but i was going to say let's go ahead and the answer is in chapter five um let's go to matthew chapter five and would someone like to read just the first two verses of, of the book now when jesus saw the crowds he went up on a mountainside and sat down His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Thank you. Yes. So that is why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus gave a Sermon on a Mount. (laughs) But how smart. I mean, you know, where most of the crowd would be able to see him and and hear him. That's right. That's my next point. So, (laughs) Marlene, for no, that was a great segue. That was perfect. Like, right into Jesus sat on the Mount. Um, And so... I never noticed that before. I don't think I did either. I pictured either. him standing. I did you know, too. I remember um, one of the sermons that Pastor um, Coffee did, or Brian, it was in the summer, and it was before he had his hips done, whatever that was. Yeah. But he went up and he was sitting, mm-hmm. and we yes. thought it was because of his hips, but he was preaching about the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, oh wow! I, I missed that. that. How cool Jesus is was that? Sitting when he was teaching. That's interesting. Yeah. 
Well, one of the things I learned was that culturally, um, so the t a teacher would go, like you just, everyone's saying is his, Jesus went up so he could be heard, so he was above, above the crowd, and it was, um, the teacher would sit and the congregation would stand. Oh, wow. So I thought how grateful yeah. I am <laughs> that yeah. our pastor yeah, stands because I'd be very tired. Yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> Depending on how long he spoke. But that was the tradition yeah. is that the teacher would sit. Um, I don't know if it was meant a place of honor or, you know, but the crowd, the crowd would, would stand. There's another little thing here that said Matthew wrote primarily for a Jewish audience. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's why you when he says kingdom of heaven not to offend the Jews he because Jewish people apparently don't write out the word God or they mm -hmm. didn't back with then. Yahweh say the word right yeah mm -hmm. so he uses a phrase kingdom of heaven out of respect for Jews oh. who never wrote out the word God mm. that's interesting I didn't come across it? that that's yeah. awesome yes amazing how even at you know to be thoughtful of Yes. Um, the name. And the yeah. reverence. That, and yeah. the reverence, oh. yes. I and to think that people that. use it uh, right. as swearing. Yeah. Right. I, I just... Oh, I cringe. Yes. I do too. It was really hard in school when, you know, it was constant. And I, I would always take the kid aside and say, mm -hmm. that just breaks my heart when you mm -hmm. say that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sorry. Mm -hmm. I, I worked at school for 26 years. I, I pretty much heard everything. Yeah. High school, right? Uh, yeah, high school. A yeah. teacher? No, yeah. I worked in a computer lab. Oh, okay. Technology. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, Jesus is publicly, as he goes up on the mount, he's taking the place of teacher with authority. That would be a place that would have teacher with authority. And then he opened his mouth and he, and he taught. And this is um, something significant that we just look at because it was public and it was outspoken. Um, despite the religious leaders in the community telling him he had no place to be there. They did not want him there. Um, but I had never seen that before, that this was a place where Jesus really publicly went forward and said, yes, they, mm -hmm. I'm going to teach. You cannot stop me from doing that. Um, so it was a very clear message to all of those who were watching and gathering um, that Jesus was claiming his rightful place as teacher. Okay, so... His, as we know from what Peggy read, it says his disciples came to him. So as we think about that, Jesus is up there as, while well, he sits, and his disciples are around him. But I'd like us to turn to chapter 7 now, the last part of the verse that we're going to do, and then the last two verses. So we start with the first two, now we're going to look at the last two. And that's verse 28 and 29. Would anyone like to read that? And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one, having authority, and not as the scribes. Yeah, that's right. Taught them as one, having authority, and not as the scribes. They had to talk, right. Mm -hmm. And my Bible translation says, yours says, the people were amazed. Mine says, the crowds were amazed. Um, does anybody have any other words of... It's all right. It's just the version of the translation mm -hmm. that we have. It's, yeah. it's all the same. But the crowd. So um, that was interesting to look at that and say at the beginning, it says his disciples gathered around him. And then at the end of the sermon, we see that there are crowds around him. And the way that 
the commentaries describe this, is that there were crowds there. So Jesus went up above the crowds, and it was very public. But he wanted his disciples to come in close, and so that they could specifically really hear. And he was speaking to them, but he was also speaking to the crowd. So the crowds were taking it in, but this was also a very personal message for his disciples. Um, And this is significant because at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus had begun announcing um, the good news that the kingdom of God, thank you so much, Linda, for pointing out why that phrase is there, um, that God's love, his peace, his reign, his joy, his hope, all of it was here. The kingdom of God was near. And in order to live under the reign of the kingdom of God, people, and this includes us today, must repent and turn from sin and to live under the authority of God and his word and later his spirit. And in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus describes is what life in the kingdom of God looks like for us as a Jesus follower, when we live under the reign of Jesus. What life was to look like for those of us who have repented and turned to God. And it's really a condition of the heart. There are some outward um, demonstrations of that, but it's really a, a condition of the heart. So what kind of life does Jesus call us to do, to have? And as we study the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see that what Jesus is calling us to is a life that looks really different than the life of the world. And it doesn't mean that we have to dress totally differently, although your bikini choice may have something to do with what you believe or not. That might be an age thing, too. That might be an age thing, too, but that depends, I guess. That's right. But what Jesus is really calling us to is the love that we have in our hearts because we have Jesus Christ in our hearts. Uh, We're going to live, we're going to move, we're going to act, we're going to think, and we're going to speak as people who are under God's rule. And we're going to look very different. That is going to look different than, than the rest of the world because the rest of the world is not under God's rule. So just to give some examples, like the world calls us to love ourselves. We have our selfies and our Facebook. I don't think anybody probably could argue that, but God calls us to love others. The world calls us to pursue happiness, but God is calling us to pursue joy. The world calls us to be independent and self-sufficient, but God is calling us to rely on one another and be unified together. The world calls us to outer beauty, but God is calling us to inner beauty. And that's what we have here is a mission statement for us as Christ followers to live and to do things God's way. So that's what we're going to look at. Mr. Stott, our author, points out that this contrast of doing things God's way versus the world's way, when I quote him, he said, is the underlining and the uniting theme of the whole Sermon on the Mount. So doing things God's way versus the world's way is the entire theme of what we're going to be studying. And Jesus is calling us to an inner righteousness. Stott says in page 7 of your book, so you can read this in the introduction, but he says, although it manifests itself outwardly and visibly in words and deeds and relationships, it remains essentially a righteousness of the heart. So I think that's very important that uh, we, we kind of keep that tension and that balance as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, that some of this could look like a recipe or a checklist to be a good Christian. But Jesus is never asking us to complete a checklist or a recipe. He's asking us for a change of our hearts. Um, And that change of our heart needs to come under his rule. And this is some of the things it looks like. 
So on your list too, you have a brief topical outline of all the things that are covered in the Sermon on the Mount. And as you look at your Bibles, I mean, I'm kind of struck, there's not a lot of things that he covers in a really short section of scripture. I mean, in my Bible, we're going to be studying one page front and back, and that's, mm-hmm. that's pretty much it for mm-hmm. the next several oh, there's weeks. there's tons in that. There's, there's a there. lot in there. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Wow. So what we're going to learn through the study is that the way, our, the way of living that Jesus is prescribing to us, these standards of living are achievable, but only when our hearts are surrendered to Christ, because that's where true heart change comes. And only by accepting Christ into our hearts and being led, surrendered by the Holy Spirit, is our heart changed and moved and impacted. And that as Jesus comes into our hearts, we know that we begin to be transformed into more of a likeness of him. And that's a lot of what he's demonstrating here, of what that likeness will look like as his followers. So this vision statement, this mission statement is radical. It is so countercultural in Jesus' day, and I think we're going to figure out clearly. (laughs) Yeah, it's radical for us, too, in our day and age. Um, The contrast to the world is really going to shine brightly. And so back to kind of this little light of mine that we were Mm -hmm. that we were saying. Um, And I have it written down, but let's see. Uh, On chapter five, verse fourteen, very simple scripture. He says, "You are the light of the world." Mm -hmm. And this is Jesus's kind of mission statement on how we are to shine our light. It's going to catch the world off guard when we love to that extreme measure that God is calling us to. Um, So as we kind of wrap this up this morning and look and start to dive in this week on our homework, let's remember that Jesus is asking, what what is he asking of me? What, as I read the scripture, what's he asking of me? Um, And how can I change or come under the rule of God as a follower of Jesus Christ? So some of you um, may have been in, in FBCG church this weekend, and some of you weren't, but they showed an amazing video this weekend um, of a missionary from our church. Did you guys yeah. see that? Oh, I've seen it three times. I can't stop praying. Did you see it too? I'm excited to show you too, and I'm excited to watch it again with all of you, but um, a missionary, a young lady, very young. <laughs> I know. That was what struck me, is how young. Yes. I don't know exactly how old she is. Very young. Yeah. So, and she's from FBCG. She's a missionary, um, and she's ministering. Um, and one of the things I think, and I'm going to show you the video, it's about four minutes, um, to look at is through the eyes of the Sermon on the Mount, first how countercultural um, the response in this is not only she's in Africa, not only to the, the culture of Africa, but really even to what would be, what would be us. Um, and the other thing is, I think it's very, I watched it with my children. So I, I was interested to see, um, I think at first it's a little deceiving that you think that Amanda, the, the missionary is the hero. And then it kind of shifts and you think, oh, the children she works with are more of the hero. But in the big story, in the, or Fred, the little boy that the center's on is the hero. But in the big story, we go back to our demonstration and God is the hero. And I think Amanda does such a beautiful job of just always pointing up. Um, mm-hmm. So let's watch that together. Can everybody see okay? Yeah, those children were so cute. They knew just what to do. Oh, yeah. we, we play with them. We blow yeah. bubbles. We yeah. do, you know, exactly. just engage them. Hi, my name is Amanda Good. I grew up in Tanga, Illinois. So right now, I'm actually serving in Rwanda. I've been there for two years. 
homeless youth and bring them into a home, we send them to school, and eventually try to reintegrate them back with family. The main role that I've taken on in my life is spending time specifically with the boys. Honestly, when they come from the streets, they need love, they need care, they need affection. So I met a six-year-old in May 2015. He was born with a congenital bone disease. So in the right leg, he was born without a tibia, and in the left, the bones were basically growing, turning inwards. When Fred was two years old, the doctors in Rwanda decided to amputate the right leg. In Rwanda, there's this belief that you know a family is suffering based on sin. So not only was Fred unable to connect with other kids his age, he had multiple adults and culture that was saying, you're a result of someone's sin. He was beat, he had stones thrown at him. He was the definition of ignored and outcast. When I heard Fred's story, I just, I couldn't imagine how his life was to be so young to be rejected by a community. And when I asked him if he could change anything about his life, he basically said, I would have to walk and I would have to go to school. You know, my head was just like, this feels impossible. They want to use his other leg, he wants to learn how to walk. And I was thinking, you know, what, what else can we do practically right now? So I went back to Hoflack with the boys that I worked with, and I told them that story. You know, so all of our small spots, so it was like five kids under the age of nine, and I say, guys, what can we do? They're raising their hands, and they're like, I want to do Legos. I want to, you know, it's just like all these things. And so the next thing I knew, it was like, okay, that's it. First, we're going to get Fred some buddies to hang out with. So he started having sleepovers with us. They included him with everything, and it was unlike anything that he had ever experienced. They would have water gun fights, and it was like if Fred's water gun was empty, they were going to trade him and go fill it up to see them give love that they've been given. I think that's what it came down to with Fred. It was like, if I was this six-year-old boy, what would I want me to do, you know? And it was like, even if I can't or we can't as an organization change anything about this kid's ability to walk, you find a way to let him and tell him that he matters regardless of his situation. Pastor Bruce actually came to Rwanda. I remember Bruce saying like something about an organization called Cure. It wasn't something that I was familiar with. But the more I learned about it, I was like, this could actually work. They operate in Kenya and various other places around the world. In Kenya, they're focused specifically on orthopedic needs for children. You have these kids that didn't have hope. You have parents that thought their kids would never walk. What they're doing is unbelievable. It's providing medical treatment that most countries can't. There is a, a spirit of God alone that I've never experienced and they are praying over the patients, they're praying for the patients. When you're in there, you can tell that God is on the move and that God is doing something and that he's so present. So once we were connected with CURE, we were able to get in contact with doctors. And the second that they said that they could fix that leg, and I was able to tell Fred that, he lit up. It was like his world changed instantly. So the surgery was done this past November, and it was successful. And Fred has been healing the last few weeks. Fred started going to school last January, and he's already reading. He's been in school for one year, he's reading. He is going to walk. His dreams are going to true. God did all this for one kid. There's multiple people that their hearts have been changed because of Fred. 
my coworker had received a video of him standing on crutches and prosthetic. And when the family saw that, they were just like screaming, praise Jesus, and like crying and like couldn't understand it. And then the next thing they wanted to do was go house to house in their village and show everyone. We're walking around with this phone, and all of the community is just like, they're like in disbelief. They're like, that's right. Not this stigma or there's a curse on your house. It's like, oh, God's with you. I think too often we think that to serve God we have to do something extraordinary, that we have to move to another continent, that we have to give up our day job. And I think also I think God has put us right where He wants to start using us. And this can be the person in the cube next to you. This can be your neighbor across the street. This can be really anyone that's right around you. I think God puts people around us every day. I think anyone can be used right now. And I don't think we need to go out of our way to do something. I think God calls us right where we are to just begin. And to start, all we need to do is sit and listen. God oh, Jesus, I know me. More than just right where we are. Supported Cure um, collected money to donate yeah. last, wasn't it last spring? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. And yeah. we had the speaker that, and gave out little Band-Aids. I did. Yes. And Band-Aids had Cure on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, I mean, because I had never heard of it before. I hadn't either. Um, but to have this tie, it's like, oh, mm-hmm. it really does work. It really yeah. does work. It really is legit. Wow. Well, 